Welcome to a special episode of The Last Month at the Federal Circuit. In this special veterans episode, we'll discuss recent developments at the Federal Circuit and Supreme Court affecting disability benefits owed to people who served in the military. With us is Finnegan partner Charles Collins Chase, who serves as partner in charge of the firm's pro bono practice and has argued extensively before the Federal Circuit on behalf of veterans. Charles, thanks for being with us. Before we dive into the recent developments, can you first just remind us of the purpose of the Veterans Benefit Statute? Sure. The Department of Veterans Affairs, or the VA, uh, their mission statement is to fulfill President Lincoln's promise to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan by serving and honoring the men and women who are America's veterans. So as a part of achieving that mission, uh, the VA seeks to provide benefits to veterans based on service-connected disabilities uh, or survivor benefits or other benefits such as education payments. Through the VA, there are currently 5.2 million veterans and survivors who are receiving compensation or pension benefits. And in just the past four years alone, VA has added more than 1 million veterans to its compensation roles. So it's a, it's a big program and it's an important one. The veterans benefit system is intended to be non-adversarial, and VA has a statutory duty to assist veterans in making their claims for benefits rather than trying to disprove their claims. Uh, Section 3007 of the veterans statute says that the VA administrator shall assist such a claimant in developing the facts pertinent to the claim. So they're intentionally supposed to help the veteran in making the claim and, and get the veteran the benefits when it's appropriate. Many veterans submit their own applications without assistance. And the issues in these cases can be very complex, involving interpreting regulations or statutes and uh, even analyzing medical evidence. So as part of the non-adversarial structure, VA provides specially trained personnel who are supposed to answer questions and help the veterans submit their claims. The Supreme Court has acknowledged this purpose of the veterans laws, this uh, non-adversarial system, stating in the Henderson versus Shinseki case that the solicitude of Congress for veterans is longstanding and that this solicitude is plainly reflected in the Veterans Judicial Review Act, as well as in subsequent laws that, quote, place a thumb on the scale in the veterans' favor in the course of administrative and judicial review of VA decisions. In practice, there are quite a few aspects of the regulations governing veterans' benefits that reflect this kind of helpful non-adversarial system. Uh, For example, for claims for service-connected disability benefits, The regulatory scheme assumes a simple temporal relationship between the disability and the period of active duty, rather than requiring proof of cause and effect. So with a few exceptions, a disability that was incurred during service is deemed service-connected without further proof, simply that it occurred during the period of service. Uh, The veteran statute also includes provisions uh, like one that's called the benefit of the doubt rule, Hmm. which states that the secretary shall consider all information and lay medical evidence of record and when there is an approximate balance of positive and negative evidence regarding any issue material to the determination of a matter, the secretary shall give the benefit of the doubt to the claimant. So the purpose of the statute is to help veterans get benefits to which they're entitled um, in recognition for the service that they've given to the country. Mm, thank you for that. So h- how do these cases arise and how are veterans' claims heard? Uh, A claim is initiated when a veteran fills out a form, either online or in paper, telling uh, VA what the claim is, what the injury is, for example, uh, perhaps with medical evidence. And then a VA regional office will review the claim, including asking for and reviewing evidence from the veteran, 
uh, from the veterans healthcare providers and others, and uh, looking to determine whether compensation is appropriate, some sort of rating for a disability um, that's compensable. If the claim is denied, a veteran has a few possible ways to seek review, including appealing to the Board of Veterans Appeals or the BVA, where a veterans law judge will review the case that comes up from the regional office to determine if they made the correct determination. A veteran who is still denied by the BVA can appeal to the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, and then from there, uh, if they have still lost, uh, appeals from the Veterans Court ultimately go up to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, where veterans cases make up about 10% of the court's caseload. Okay, so that's very helpful. So, so what are some of the hot-button issues you've been seeing in veterans cases recently? Uh, I'll mention two big issues that I've been keeping an eye on lately. One is the applicability of the pro-veteran canon of construction, which is called the Gardner canon, uh, which has come up in a lot of cases uh, and is, is, I think, a pretty important um, thing to get some resolution on, although we don't have resolution on it at the moment. The other is the issue of equitable tolling, which was the focus of the Ariano case that my Finnegan colleague James Barney argued last month at the Supreme Court. Okay. So you mentioned the Gardner canon. What, what is that and where does it come from? The Gardner Canon is a tool of statutory interpretation, and it states that when construing veteran statutes, any interpretive doubt is to be resolved in the veteran's favor. Uh, the name comes from a 1994 Supreme Court case, Brown v. Gardner, but the canon has uh, deeper historical roots, its origins coming from the Supreme Court's World War II era case law that explained that interpretive doubt in construing veterans' benefit statutes should be resolved in the veteran's favor based on the veteran's service to the country and, and the design of the veteran's benefit system. Uh, in the Boone v. Leitner case in 1943, uh, going back a ways, uh, the Supreme Court stated that legislation is always to be liberally construed to protect those who have been obliged to drop their own affairs to take up the burdens of the nation. And a few years later, the Supreme Court in Fishgold v. Sullivan Dry Dock said, that veterans legislation is to be liberally construed for the benefit of those who left private life to serve their country in its hour of great need. How did you start tracking uh, cases where the Gardner Cannon was at issue? Uh, I handled two Federal Circuit appeals recently that were decided last year, actually, where the Gardner Cannon came up and was an issue in the case. One was uh, Roby versus McDonough, and the other was Langdon versus McDonough. Uh, in the Langdon case, the Federal Circuit resolved the appeal in our client's favor without reaching the Gardner Cannon issue. Uh, in Roby, the Cannon was one of the bases for uh, vacating the VA's decision. The court stated that the Veterans Court erred by declining to consider the pro-veteran Cannon when assessing the meaning of regulation uh, that the Veterans Court had concluded was ambiguous. The court stated that consideration of the canon is not optional when there is interpretive doubt and that the Gardner canon must be factored into the Veterans Court's analysis. So having worked on those cases, I think it's an important issue. It still hasn't been resolved. And so I've been tracking on it ever since. Hmm. And so if this pro-veteran Gardner canon has been recognized by the Supreme Court since the 40s, what is the dispute about applying it? In short, even though courts have acknowledged the canon exists and, and must have some meaning, uh, judges can't seem to agree on when or how it should apply in interpreting a statute or a regulation. Uh, so it's a, a matter of what power it has in the ultimate determination of regulatory or statutory meaning and when it should kick in. This disagreement has come to a head in recent years, including last year in the Federal Circuit's denial of en banc rehearing in a case called Kaisor versus McDonough. Uh, that case was first decided back in 2017. 
the court affirmed the Veterans Court decision based on its determination that a word, the word relevant, uh, in a regulation was ambiguous. Uh, the veteran could have been entitled to an additional 26 years of benefits depending on the interpretation of that word. So it was an important issue of regulatory interpretation. The panel applied what's called our deference and concluded that VA's interpretation of the regulation was not plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulatory framework. And for those who don't know, our deference is something that dictates that courts in certain instances are to defer to a reasonable federal agency interpretation of its own ambiguous regulation. The theory being that an agency knows best what it meant when it promulgated regulations and uh, unless its determination of what something means is plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulatory framework, we should listen to what the agency says it meant. Uh, the Gardner canon came up in the Kaiser case uh, on a petition for rehearing. The court denied rehearing, but Judge O'Malley dissented from the denial, joined by two other judges, Judges Newman and Moore. Judge O'Malley noted the tension between giving our deference to VA's interpretation of its regulations and the Gardner line of cases from the Supreme Court requiring that interpretive doubt be resolved in a veteran's favor. Uh, the case eventually went up to the Supreme Court solely on the question of the continued viability of our deference, so not on the Gardner canon question. Uh, the Supreme Court vacated and re remanded, and so the case went back to the federal circuit. The Supreme Court explained that courts should not afford our deference unless a regulation is genuinely ambiguous, not just say it looks kind of ambiguous, but really exhaust all the traditional tools of construction and determine if the regulation is genuinely ambiguous. Uh, only then should our deference kick in. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the Supreme Court did not address the interplay between the Gardner canon and our deference. What happened when the case went back to the federal circuit? Did the Supreme Court's decision help resolve the differing views about how to apply the Gardner canon? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, uh, it did not. On remand, the federal circuit continued to disagree about how to apply the Gardner canon and where the canon fits relative to other tools of construction in the Chevron and our frameworks. Um, the panel on remand again decided the case against the veteran, Mr. Kaisor. But this time, it concluded that the regulation was not ambiguous and that the only reasonable meaning was the one offered by the government. Um, the court, again, had a rehearing petition and denied en banc rehearing, uh, again, over a dissent written by Judge O'Malley, this time joined by Judges Newman, Moore, and Reyna. The other side was a concurrence in the denial of rehearing written by then Chief Judge Prost, uh, joined by Judges Lurie, Wallach, Toronto, and Chen. According to the concurrence, uh, the Gardner canon comes into play only after applying other interpretive tools. So they relegated it to a lower place in terms of um, its power to help resolve issues of regulatory or statutory interpretation. Um, the concurrence states that the Gardner canon should play a role, quote, only when a sustained textual analysis, including any applicable descriptive canons, yields competing plausible interpretations, none of which is fairly described as the best. Even the concurrence, however, recognized that the pro-veteran canon from Gardner is in tension with the Chevron and our deference principles, and those are all triggered by ambiguity in interpreting a statute or regulation. So the concurrence recognized that there's some confusion here in terms of the right way to apply the Gardner canon. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. What, what did the judges say in dissent? 
The dissenters uh, disagreed about the Gardner Cannon being a less important tool of construction. They disagreed that it should come in only at the end if the other tools of construction have not provided an answer. In their opinion, it should come in earlier as part of the determination that a statute or a regulation is ambiguous. Um, and they argue that if the pro-veteran Gardner Cannon comes in only at the end after Chevron and our deference, it would be rendered a nullity and would not really apply in any cases to resolve any issues of interpretation. So what's next for the Gardner Canon? Are there percolating cases out there where a court could apply the canon and give some clarity about its role? Yeah, there are. Uh, the increased visibility of the canon in cases like Kaisor, I think, has led to it being argued in more veterans' cases, more veterans' appeals. So there are pending Federal Circuit appeals and Supreme Court cert petitions where the issue has been raised. So it may be addressed again soon. I hope it will be. Um, unfortunately, the Supreme Court uh, just last week actually passed up an opportunity to take up this issue, uh, denying certiorari in a case called Buffington. Uh, Buffington raised the question of whether the Chevron doctrine permits courts to defer to VA's construction of a statute designed to benefit veterans without first considering the pro-veteran canon of construction. So it would have been right on point on this issue and, and would have been useful, in my opinion, for the Supreme Court to, to take up. Um, but there is another Supreme Court case, uh, Veteran Warriors, Inc. versus Secretary of Veterans Affairs, where the issue has been raised in a petition for certiorari that was filed just a few weeks ago. Um, that sort of petition has two questions presented, both of which involve the Gardner canon. The first is, whether courts can defer to the construction of a statute by VA without first considering whether the statute permits a pro-veteran construction pursuant to the pro-veteran canon. And the second question is whether Chevron should be clarified or replaced to protect canons of construction, including the pro-veteran canon, from becoming a nullity. So this case, again, squarely raises the issue of the Gardner canon and, in fact, uh, squarely raises the issue of the tension between Chevron deference and the Gardner canon. So here, if the Supreme Court granted certiorari, it could really do a lot to explain the proper approach for applying this canon. Your colleague, James Bartney, recently argued a veteran's case involving equitable tolling before the Supreme Court, as you earlier mentioned. Can you tell us about that argument? Absolutely. Uh, James argued the case on October 4th, and uh, he did an outstanding job, I might add. He and his team really did a nice job. He had also argued the case before the Ombank Federal Circuit. So James had been steeped in this case and the issue of equitable tolling for a long time, and he was very well prepared for the Supreme Court argument. The case uh, called Ariano involves uh, retroactivity of veterans' benefits. Mr. Ariano is a U.S. Navy veteran uh, who, while serving on the USS Midway, witnessed his fellow service members being injured and killed, and he himself was almost crushed and swept overboard. As a result, he began suffering from severe mental health conditions, including PTSD. And unfortunately, the severity of his condition left him unable to understand his eligibility to file a disability benefits claim after his discharge from the Navy in 1981. He eventually filed an application 30 years later with the assistance of his brother, and the VA awarded him benefits. But it did so only as of 2011, the, the date when he had filed his claim. Um, rather than extending the benefits back to his date of discharge back in 1981. The VA did this based on the statute, which allows an effective date for disability benefits no earlier than one year before the application date. So the way this works is you're discharged, and if you file a claim for benefits within one year of your discharge, you can get benefits going all the way back to your date of discharge. But if a veteran waits any longer than a year, 
the statute allows the benefits only to go back a year before. So the longer you wait, the bigger the window in which mm -hmm. you're not receiving benefits you might otherwise be entitled to. Um, in Mr. Ariano's case, the benefits over those 30 intervening years um, could be substantial. So it could be a substantial amount of money over that time. Uh, before the Federal Circuit and the Supreme Court, James and his and his Finnegan team argued that the timetable in the statute should be equitably told, which would mean that the one-year deadline would be paused based on the extraordinary circumstances that Mr. Ariano faced in filing a timely application for disability benefits. In the Federal Circuit, the court split. So it was a 6-6 split uh, on whether the statute was uh, a statute of limitations where equitable tolling would be available under the Supreme Court's precedent in the Irwin case, or whether it was instead just a, a grace period. Um, the characterization of that is important based on the Irwin case in terms of whether equitable tolling can apply at all. And so that was an issue in the Federal Circuit that split the court. Six of the judges concluded that it was not a statute of limitations and that even if it were, that the statute rebutted the presumption of equitable tolling, showing Congress's intent to foreclose equitable tolling for these types of circumstances. The other six judges reached the exact opposite conclusion, namely that the one-year deadline is a statute of limitations for which the Irwin presumption of equitable tolling should apply. So in other words, uh, six were in favor of finding equitable tolling applied, six were against it. Um, the decision on the actual merits of whether Mr. Ariano could be entitled to equitable tolling here uh, were, were somewhat uh, different, but on the legal issue, the court was split 6-6. Six, six, um, and so the case went up to the Supreme Court. The question before the court that addresses this issue is whether Irwin's rebuttable presumption of equitable tolling applies to the one-year statutory deadline in Section 5110B1 of the Veterans Statute for seeking retroactive disability benefits? And if so, has the government rebutted the presumption? The argument, as I said, was on October 4th. It addressed the same types of points and questions as the argument in the Federal Circuit. Uh, it was a, a lively amount of questioning from the judges and um, hard to tell which way it will come out, although I think James has a good shot and, and it will be very interesting to see when the decision issues what they decide. Mm. And can you characterize what kind of impact the decision could have on on veterans? Yeah, this case could have a big impact on a lot of veterans. Um, many veterans, just like Mr. Ariano, have a hard time applying for benefits when they're discharged, often for the very reason that the disability that they would seek benefits for makes it hard to file an application. That's what happened to Mr. Ariano. And as you can imagine, lots of veterans are in a similar position where uh, as a result of something during their service, they face a disability, whether physical or mental, that makes it hard for them to file a claim. If equitable tolling is available to those veterans, it could allow them to get benefits back to the date of their discharge and sort of uh, recognize the fact that sometimes the thing that they're seeking benefits for is actually something that is good cause for tolling the limitations period and allowing them to reach back to the date of their discharge. Uh, one example that has come up through the Supreme Court uh, with an amicus brief and has been sort of known is a group of veterans called the Edgewood Veterans, um, some of whom were, were involved in that amicus petition before, or amicus brief before the Supreme Court. Those veterans were subjected to chemical testing a while back um, at the Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland. And, you know, today viewed pretty negatively the testing that was done on these veterans. And they were required, unfortunately, to sign a secrecy oath, preventing them from disclosing anything about the testing. So they face the awful situation of um, violating the secrecy oath to file an application for disability benefits or just 
waiting, abiding by their secrecy oath, not getting any benefits for the injuries and disabilities that occurred based on what was done to them during their service. The oath prevented them from seeking benefits. And so they're a, a particularly sympathetic group of people. But you know, there are other people who are situated um, not in the same place, but in places where something that happened during their service would prevent them from filing a claim. And so this decision could have a really huge impact on those folks. Charles, can you talk about Finnegan's history representing veterans? How far back does it go? Why does the firm devote its resources to this issue? Sure. Um, our Veterans Assistance Program began in 2008, and it's continued to grow ever since. Um, hundreds of Finnegan attorneys and staff have worked on veterans pro bono cases since the inception of the program. And the reason why we do that is, is several reasons. The first is the veterans need our help. To, to go back to that Supreme Court case uh, and the quote I mentioned earlier, um, we have an obligation to help those who have been obliged to drop their own affairs to take up the burdens of the nation. I believe strongly that if people serve, we should have their backs and help them get the benefits to which they're entitled uh, once they're discharged from the service. And so uh, a lot of folks at Finnegan feel the same way. And, and the program has been um, very successful because people have a tremendous amount of, of dedication to that principle. Another reason is that the veterans' appeals fall squ squarely within our area of expertise based on our Federal Circuit patent practice. Um, veterans' appeals are decided at the Federal Circuit after they go past the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. And so we have a tremendous depth of experience based on our work at the Federal Circuit in terms of knowing the court, uh, its practices, its precedents. Um, and in addition to that, numerous Finnegan attorneys actually clerked at the Federal Circuit. And so they were uh, fortunate enough to assist their judges with veterans' appeals while clerking and, and know veterans' law actually quite well as well. Um, so that, that experience helps us not only in the federal circuit, but also in the veterans court, where they also apply federal circuit case law and precedents to deciding the cases before them. Mm. And how big of a commitment does the firm make to representing veterans? Um, our veterans assistance program is, is a big part of our pro bono at Finnegan. Um, since the start of the program, our firm has handled more than 1,000 cases before the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, about 40 federal circuit appeals on behalf of veterans, and now, as of last month, one Supreme Court case. Um, at any given time, we've got a lot of people working on veterans' cases. Um, and in 2021 alone, our firm worked nearly 4,600 hours on veterans' pro bono matters. So it's it's a big commitment. Um, one other cool thing is when you do veterans' cases, you, you may be entitled under the Equal Access to Justice Act to recover attorney's fees. When you have a suit against the government, you can recover EJA fees. Uh, Finnegan donates all of our EJA fees that are awarded in our veterans' cases. And um, since we've begun this work, we've actually recouped and donated more than $5.5 million in fees. And so our commitment is not just doing the cases, but then um, sinking the money that we would otherwise have received right back into veterans' charities. So we donate to Disabled American Veterans, the National Veterans Legal Services Program, and a variety of other charities, Fisher House, Shepherd Center, Yellow Ribbon Fund. Shelter to Soldier, a lot of really good organizations, including even the United Service Members Organization uh, Lounge and the airport here in Washington, Baltimore area. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of really interesting veterans charities doing important work, and we donate the money that we uh, would get through these cases right back into veterans charities. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Charles, you were recently appointed partner in charge of the firm's pro bono program. Do you have any broad pro bono goals that you'd like to see the firm achieve in the coming years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, I guess you could kind of go on the, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it model. Our, our programs have been very successful. They're, they're both broad and deep. We do a ton of veterans work, but we also have a lot of other types of pro bono we handle. Uh, we do asylum cases, uh, criminal trials and post-conviction work, landlord-tenant disputes, child custody cases, and, and some copyright and trademark work for nonprofit organizations. So one goal is simply to, to keep up the good work. I'd like to do more veterans cases. There are certainly more cases out there and more veterans who, who need our help. And so we'd like to continue to grow that program. Um, and, and it's at a very early level, but um, we're also considering expanding our veterans work into some other areas, uh, other types of claims uh, beyond the ones that we've traditionally been handling over the course of the program. And so uh, considering expanding the veterans program even further. So those are a couple of the things I'm working on. Well, all right. We'll look forward to talking to you about those programs in the future. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a special podcast from Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. We've been speaking with Finnegan attorney Charles Collins Chase. For more information on Finnegan's pro bono program, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.